Thank you, Jason. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. Amen? And then he never failed me yet. I couldn't tell which ones were the older high schoolers, but I tell you, I was, I was singing along on the front row there. I was giving you guys support. I love that song, and I've loved it for a long time. And Caleb and Colin, good job, guys. Good job leading us tonight. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great thing to watch our kids uh, grow up and, and, uh, and serve the Lord. So I turned on the World Cup this afternoon, um, pretty late, I guess, about 3.55 in the afternoon. It was in the 100 and 15th minute, I, I turned it on just in time to see the decisive goal. Anybody not know who won yet? Because I really don't want to ruin this for you. Uh, anybody really not want me to ruin this for you tonight? Just raise your hand if this is a big deal to you, because I'm about to ruin it for everybody. But um, and I just want to know who I'm making mad before I make them mad. And um, no, uh, you know, amazingly, it was an extra time, and there was a goal, and, and you know, some wept. And some rejoiced. But what was interesting was the winning team's goalie was crying. They show this vivid scene of um, this guy whose name I'm not going to say who um, was the goalie. And he was just weeping. And I thought, you know, there, there's weeping that comes from great sorrow. And there is weeping that comes from great victory. And the tears that flow are, are the same in a way. But at, at the same time, there is a deep sense of... Um, of joy that results in victory. And I just followed it a little bit this afternoon. And the leader of the losing team, when he received his medal for second place, he received it graciously. And then as he walked out of the room, he took it off and put it in his pocket because uh, he didn't like losing the game. And I wondered as I watched the celebration in the streets of the city of, I'm not going to tell you, I wondered what, what will it be like for the winners when they go home? What will it be like for the losers when they go home? And more especially, I wondered, what will it be like when you and I come home to God? In our studies in Kings and Chronicles, we saw that God's people went into exile, not because of some arbitrary judgment by God, not because God just had a bad day and and, uh, was uh, unfair in His punishment of His people, but precisely Because of choices they made, they sat down at a great big banquet of consequences. And then we saw that God told Cyrus at the end of uh, 2 Chronicles to send his people back to rebuild the temple. You know, it's one thing to go home as a conquering champion. But it's another thing to go home as the one who lost. Let me give you good news tonight. Even for those who had lost... All was not lost. This is the grace of God. Would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Ezra? Ezra, we'll read just a few verses in chapter 1, a few in chapter 3, and a few in chapter 7. I want to think with you about this book. It's really one of the shorter ones that we've looked at. We've looked at Genesis, which was 50 chapters in a whirlwind. But I'd like to lead us through Ezra tonight and then Nehemiah. Next Sunday night, let's stand together as we read God's Word. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, 
the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has appointed me to build a temple for Him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of His people among you, may His God be with Him, and let Him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide Him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then in chapter 3, verse 7, we pick up again. After they've rebuilt the altar, they begin to rebuild the temple. There's a long list of the names of the people in chapters 1 and 2. Then it says, Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah and the sons of Hinnadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel, With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Chapter 5, verse 5 says, but the eye of their God was watching over them. Then in chapter 7, after these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Bucky, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month for the gracious hand of of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Father, may the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let it be of comfort to the people of God tonight that God can work through anyone. The reference uh, for us is Cyrus, this king of Persia. God used him to send his exiled people home. And actually the people went in three waves. First there was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel who brought a wave of people back. He was a political leader and he brought the people back when Cyrus sent them. Then the people encountered some opposition as they laid the foundation of the temple. They didn't really get the temple built immediately. It took a couple of prophets named Haggai and Zechariah to urge them and encourage them to complete the rebuilding of the temple. And it's some 50 years after Zerubbabel, just to give you a point of reference, that Ezra comes with a Bible in his hands, so to speak, carrying with him the scroll of the Scriptures in which he is well-versed. He knows the Torah He knows the law of his God. He not only has learned it, but he has lived it. And because he has lived it, he's in a position to teach it. And as he teaches the Word of God to the people, there is a a spiritual transformation in their lives. What we find in the book of Ezra is the story of God restoring His people to their land. And then how He works in their lives to reveal Himself to them, to reveal their sin to them. And then it's the story of the people of God in chapters 9 and 10, repenting of their sin, turning from it, and turning their hearts back to God. And it amounts to uh, an enormous, marvelous spiritual revival. And, And interwoven in this book are themes of the sovereignty of God. It's God who tells Cyrus. It's God who has His eye on His people in chapter 5, verse 5. It's God in chapters 7 and 8 whose gracious hand, isn't that a beautiful expression? God's gracious hand was upon Ezra. God's gracious hand was upon His people. He was guiding them. I mean to say that the God who started the process was the one who brought the process to completion. And I think for people like us to read these words and hear the Word of God. And here in chapter 10, for instance, one of the spiritual leaders say, we have sinned. Nevertheless, there is still hope. There is still hope for people like us whose ancestors sinned against God. God can forgive us. God can restore us. I mean to tell you tonight that even though you've heard, you can't go home again. The Scriptures say, the book of Ezra says, you can. You can come home to God. But understand as you come home to God that you must come with the intention of starting to worship again. You must come home to God with the intention of staying in His Word again. It is possible to come home to God. Uh, Larry and I share in a number of funeral services to many in recent years. Too many of our good people have gone home to be with the Lord. Recently, we met with a family, as we so often do, and listened to their hearts, and they chose an interesting song for that funeral service. They chose that song. Do you know the song, Lord, I'm Coming Home? You know that song that says, I've wandered far in sin, now I'm coming home. 
uh, the pass of sin too long I've trod. Now I'm coming home. The thing is, I knew the lady who passed away. And it almost seemed in a funeral service like that, that was a celebration of eight plus decades of serving God, inappropriate to sing a song about wandering far from God and, and treading too long in the paths of sin. But at another level, that song really was her story. She was who she was because God is who He is and because she found that His gracious hand was upon her and in a moment of her life, she surrendered to Him. She turned from her, her sin. She received Christ as her Savior. And the reason she was so incredibly good was because she had found the grace of God and it had transformed her life completely. We chose verses of that song that emphasize somehow less the sort of wandering far from God. But, but the message at the end of that song, that little refrain is haunting for people like us. It says, coming home, coming home, never more to roam. Open wide thine arms of love. Lord, I'm coming home. Well, how do we come back to God? In fact, we come back in worship. We come back in the Word. Ezra calls us to do something. In fact, he calls us to do two things. First, when we come home to God, we start to worship again. And God, thankfully, knows no geographic boundaries. He's sovereign. He can even use the Prince of Persia, if you will. He can use... Cyrus, the great king, to call his people back home. And God starts the process of rebuilding. And then he superintends that process. And then he stays with his people through the finish. And I wondered when I read that, what has God started in our lives? And do we really believe Paul when he says to the Philippians that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work in you? No wonder they worshiped. No wonder they came back to worshiping God and reading in chapter 3. We realize something about their worship, that their worship was at its very heart participatory. I mean to say everybody in every way worshiped God. It was, it was the spiritual leaders. It was also the people. The instrumentalists were there. The musicians were there. The singers were there. And everybody was zoned in on worshiping God. No wonder they worshiped this sovereign God who had called them back home again to Jerusalem, to the place where they once had worshiped. And it's interesting when they gather together in that place that we discover worship was not a spectator sport for them. It was participatory at its basis. They took their places, it says in Ezra 3, verse 10. Have you found your place in worshiping God have we taken our places? I don't want my place to be empty. Do you? I love the story from the tribe in Africa where the Christians had their own little paths that they went down in the, in the grass to the places of their devotions. And when a person had not been regular, the grass grew over the path. And the accountability they had with each other was to say, brother, I believe the grass has grown over your path. You've not been in your place. You've not been devoted to the worship of God. What's interesting is, while they were worshiping God, they began to encounter opposition. In fact, Ezra tells us of, of different leaders, and if you're not careful, you'll, the history will be lost on you, but there's a, a succession of leaders, and opposition arises first in this first time, even under Cyrus, but then it continues under Xerxes and Artaxerxes in the time of, uh, 
of Esther. We'll study that, uh, the second sermon from, from now. And then also there's a letter to Darius. And all these people are opposing them, but they're trying to do what God wants them to do. And I wondered if you would pray for me that Talwood might be a place that is not so interested in pleasing people or impressing our community that we ever lose sight of pleasing our God. Here they are doing exactly what God called them to do. And of course they encounter opposition. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And perhaps if you and I are not facing any opposition at all, it may be that we're not walking the road that God has called us to walk. But it was their dedication in participation that overcame the opposition. Jess Moody tells about a time when uh, Baptists decided to have a national conference center and they chose that beautiful location up in the mountains outside of Santa Fe, Glorieta, New Mexico. And it's a, a beautiful place if you've ever been there. But when they got there, the people in the local area were of a different denomination. They were not particularly excited about a bunch of Baptists coming to town. Their fear was these Baptists would just proselyte everybody and the whole state of New Mexico would, would lose its uh, denominational identity. And so they made things hard on these builders as they came. They drove big trucks up there with lumber and somehow the next morning the people who had driven the trucks would find that somebody had poured sand in their gas tanks. It was hard for them to complete the work. There was a temptation to sort of cry foul and say, we're just trying to do what God told us to do. But they decided to take a different tack. They decided to plant beautiful flowers because everybody loves beautiful flowers. Have you ever prayed in the prayer garden at Glorietta? I was 17, just, uh, just finished my senior year in high school when I first went to Glorietta to, to speak there. And I remember praying in that prayer garden, the beautiful flowers. But they planted those as a testimony to the community. We're not here to harm anybody. That wasn't enough. There was still opposition. And so they decided to bring great choirs, not unlike our choir, Great choirs to sing. And they invited the whole community to come. Everybody loves great music. And somehow in the beautiful flowers and the beautiful melodies of the music, all the resistance and opposition seemed to go away. They overcame the opposition through their dedication to participation. The harder these people decided to follow God and do what God had told them to do. When they began to sing with praise and thanksgiving and talk about the goodness of God and how His love to Israel endures forever. And they were all joining in that. Their worship was participatory. Everybody got involved in that. Not only was it participatory, but I I want you to see that their worship was passionate. That it says when the, the ones who had seen the former temple, see some of them had been around long enough. Remember Jeremiah had said, hey, You know, God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not evil. But the verse before that says, and you're going to be there 70 years. And now the 70 years are up. And some of the people who saw the old temple come back and watch them lay that foundation. And they just weep out loud. They weep out loud. And other ones are rejoicing and they're shouting. And it's hard for those in the distance to distinguish between the weeping and the rejoicing because the people are so loud in their worship and in their commitment and in their dedication and in their participation. And as a result, there is a deep sense of the passion of their worship. One of the Psalms of the Ascents captures it. It's Psalm 126. It's one of my favorites. It says, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. 
Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. They say we went out weeping, sowing seeds. We came back rejoicing, carrying our sheaves of the harvest. That's how it is when God's people come home. We come back with the weeping of repentance, but we, we go out in the rejoicing that comes on the heels of that weeping. Weeping may endure for the night, Psalm 30 says, but joy comes in the morning. And they were loud with their worship. It was passionate. They were not dispassionate worshipers just sort of uh, going through the motions, mumbling the words. But they were all in in their worship. There was weeping and there was rejoicing because they had come home and the sound of their voices echoed from miles around. When Dr. Rufus Spain taught me about the history of religion in America when I was in college, he, he taught me about George Whitfield. Uh, perhaps the greatest evangelist of the first great awakening in the United States, and how people could hear him without a microphone a mile away when he was preaching. In his own words, he said, I love those that thunder out the word. The Christian world is in a dead sleep. Nothing but a loud voice can awaken them out of it. And these worship leaders were worshiping for all they were worth. Because people out there were watching and listening and there was the hope that in some way their passion might awaken a world that had lost its love for God. A people who had lost their connection with God. And we may hope that that may happen to us as well. Melanie and I went with some friends of ours to to Wicked this week. That sounds like an odd thing for a pastor and his wife to do with members of the church, but we went to that play, and uh, I assure you it's uh, not at its, uh, at its heart anything uh, evil, but it's an interesting sort of retelling of the story of the Wizard of Oz. And, and I tell you, I must have slept through that the first time we saw it, because there were just parts of it I'd never seen before, and I heard things I'd never heard before, and, and then there were parts I remembered, and, and I really enjoyed it, but I tell you, not as much as the guy next to me. I'm not sure anybody enjoyed it. I've never heard a man in the middle of a musical start hooping and hollering. He just, you know, woo! And he just, you know, it was like an Aggie, you know, Aggie gathering or something. I mean, it was just no offense intended, but it was, you know, it was just like that. There was just all this. And I thought, we do that, don't we, for entertainment. I've been caught doing that uh, watching sporting events. When Casey first uh, heard me upstairs watching a Baylor football game, she asked Melanie if something was wrong. You know, I was just, you know way too into it. And so sometimes we weep over what might have been. But I wonder if we ever weep over our sin. I can tell how important something is to me by the way I respond when it doesn't go the way that I want it to. I didn't think I cared much about soccer until the USA lost. And then I started, you know, I was going to do a wedding in Austin. I was kind of wiped out for the afternoon just over a soccer game of all things. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll hold on to Brazil, you know. Go Brazil. And then Brazil loses. And then I thought, well, I grew up in Germany. And then they lose. And I just, you know, it's just hard. And, and I find that when I, when I cheer for a team and they lose, I take it way too hard. I wonder if we take our spiritual mistakes as hard as we do the losses of our sporting teams. David McCullough in his book, Mornings on Horseback, tells the story of young Teddy Roosevelt turns out Roosevelt was a little bit afraid to go to the church, the Madison Square Church. He refused to set foot inside it alone. His mother asked him why. He said he was terrified because the pastor had talked about something that would get him. 
She said, what are you talking about? And he said, it's something called the zeal. In his mind, it crouched in the dark. It was something rather like an alligator or a dragon. And he was afraid of the zeal. And so using a concordance, she read him those passages that use that word zeal and finally came to John chapter 2, verse 17, where it says, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And he was afraid zeal was going to eat him if he went to church. There's something worse than being consumed with zeal. And that is being subsumed in the apathy of the world around us. Oh, that you and I could be consumed with zeal for the Lord. That that somehow as these who heard the sound of the returning Israelites far away recognized that God was up to something. Oh, that somebody would hear about us. Paul talks about it in his letter to the Thessalonians. That first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 8. And he says, the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. And I mean to say to you tonight that the day you decide to come home to God, You decide to participate in that experience passionately. Somebody somewhere is going to know about that. Somebody will know that you were committed to coming home to God. Everybody around these Israelites knew. It was some 50 years later after uh, interruptions and opposition and they finally complete and dedicate the temple after Haggai says, how is it that you live in your homes with paneled walls but the Lord's house is not yet complete, and they finish the temple. And then, it's 50 years later, after Zerubbabel, that Ezra comes to town. Like those early Baptist preachers, somebody wrote a book about them recently and called it, With a Bible in Their Hands. Ezra comes back with the scroll firmly in his hand. I think it's good to have a Bible with you. When I was in high school, I I took my Bible to, to school with me, led a Bible study there. Uh, in the courtyard, sometimes in the rooms on a rainy day, out in the garden area outside our school there in Germany. That's legal, by the way. No, no teacher can do that for you, but you can lead a Bible study. You can, you can invite others to come and read the Scriptures with you. To this day, when I go to the hospital, I take my Bible with me. It's so attached to me, sometimes my family will tell you that on a Sunday. Uh, I get out of the car to go into the restaurant, and I carry it with me. They say, are you going to need that in there, or are you just carrying it with you. It's just sort of a habit in my life. Three things we know about Ezra. First of all, he brought the Bible with him. He was a a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. Chapter 7, verse 6 says. The second thing we know is that he brought others with him. This is what a leader is. Somebody who influences others. Leadership is nothing more, nothing less than influence on other people. Leadership can be for good or it can be for bad. Let it be for good in your life that you take others with you. He brought a Bible with him. He brought others with him. But the best news is he brought God with him. And so again and again, four times we read in these verses, it says in, in 7, verse 6, in 7, 28, 8, 18, 8, 22, it says the gracious hand of his God was on him. And that's a great, great place to be, to be under the hand of our great God. And the message translation, chapter 7, verse 10 says it this way, Ezra had committed himself to studying the revelation of God. He had committed himself to study the revelation of God. He had committed himself to living it and to teaching Israel to live its truths and ways. The reason we study is so that we may live the Scriptures. So that we may help others to live the Scriptures. We we study the Bible. Even more important than having a Bible in our hands, 
is having God's Word in our hearts. Psalm 119 says, Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Because I'm a Christian, therefore every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's Word in the Holy Scripture, every day that I don't get into the Bible, he said, is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the Word of God. And I'll say something to our students tonight and to all of us. I'm getting the privilege of watching God call out some young ministers and some young preachers across the country like Francis Chan and David Platt have caught my undivided attention. And I'll tell you something. The ministers who make a difference in the next generation will be people well-versed in this book. They'll not be people who persuade people with great human eloquence. But they will be people steeped in the Scriptures. People who um, know their spiritual right hand from their left because they have spent time in the counsel of God. And they have so read this book that they have inculcated it into their very souls so that if they were cut, they would bleed Bible. Those are the people who are going to make a difference in this world. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7 describe it for us. Why we study it says... Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. The only reason we study the Bible is so that we might live the Bible. The NIV says the observance of the law. But I like the message better. It says Ezra had committed himself to living it. He raised his obedience level to his education level. One of our students took me aside at camp this year and said, pray for me. Because I've heard every one of these Bible stories again and again in my time at Tallowood. I've been taught by the best Sunday school teachers. I would venture to say that the speakers that, that Jerome brings to camp through the years, just through the years at Tallowood, I would just have to say to you, I can't imagine hearing the Word of God taught by better preachers than the ones that Jerome and Larry have brought to camp through the years. I mean, it's just astonishing how good they are. And this student said to me, here's my fear that I will have heard these stories so many times that when I hear them this time, they won't change me. They won't affect me. So pray for me that when, that when I hear the Word of God, it will change the way I live. I think of Richard Baxter who wrote about preachers in his day and said, how curiously I have heard some men preach and how carelessly I have watched them live. The only part of the Bible that we really believe is the part that we live. Whatever we say, what, whatever stance we take, think about that, that movie, The Book of Eli, and, uh, and this man who literally fights for the Word of God with a literal sword. He defends the sword. Somebody said, you know, the, the Bible is, is rather like a lion. You don't have to protect it. You just have to turn it loose. And what if we turn the Scripture loose in our lives? What if we allowed the Spirit of God who breathed these words into the writers to breathe on us till like those who were slain in Ezekiel's vision, we come to life an exceeding great army filled with the very breath of God Himself. And those who study the Bible in order to live the Bible are uniquely in the position to help others live the Bible. What happened when Ezra taught the Bible? Well, it was effective. Not in the sense that people thought Ezra is a really popular preacher. 
but rather in the sense that they recognized in the words that he taught that there was something wrong with their lives and they had been forsaking the faith to intermarry with unbelieving nations. And the result was they walked away from God because the faith was not important to their spouses. It's exactly what Paul describes for believers in the New Testament as being unequally yoked. And I caution all of us who are considering marriage that under no circumstances for any reason should we date or marry an unbeliever. I don't just mean check off a box because they're Baptist or grew up in church. I mean that they must follow Christ as you do. And I mean by that that you must follow Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Listen to, listen to Ezra's prayer in chapter 9. He says, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to You, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. This is not for Ezra a time of nationalistic pride. This is a time for genuine repentance. In verse 8, he says, But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious to us, not deserting us in our bondage. Verse 13 of chapter 9. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds. And listen to this. It's a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, You have punished us less than our sins have deserved. You will know. I will know. We will know that our hearts are repentant before God. When instead of defending ourselves before God, we say, God, we deserve worse than we got. You have not punished us as our sins deserve, but you have given us grace. And then he asked this question, shall we again break our commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? In chapter 10, verse 1, while Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and fasting before the Lord, throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of the Israelites came and they too wept bitterly. And one of them said, you're right. We must do as you say. This is why the other leaders of Israel said there is hope. Because when God restored the nation and when He revealed Himself to them in their word and when they saw the holiness of God, instead of defending themselves, they repented. There's hope in repentance. I was reading that story recently of Aaron and the day that he lost two of his sons because they were burning unauthorized fire. I don't know how many times I've read that story. But I tell you, when I read that story the other day, it caused me to tremble. I thought, God, if you will bring that kind of judgment on Aaron's sons, what does that say about people like us who have heard the good news, the full story of Jesus Christ and His grace in our lives? What, what does that say about the way we ought to live? And Bob Alberg tells about his church up in, in Illinois and how they exercise church discipline with a man in their church who, who committed repeated, unrepentant adultery and they They took him to task. He was devastating his own home, but he was devastating the church. And they took him to task and brought him before the church and said, we're going to vote you out of the membership until you turn from this sin. And he said, do your worst. Do what you want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't care what you do. His wife was heartbroken for a period of years. They wept with her in prayer meeting. They prayed that God would turn his heart, that God would open his eyes, that God would bring him to a point of repentance. It was last August after a a stint of serving in the reserves over in Iraq and preparing the bodies of the soldiers who came back to the United States that he came back, this, 
this man who had been disciplined by the church came back to the church and he pounded on the pastor's door. And when the pastor opened the door, he threw himself on the pastor's shoulder and he wept and he said, the hound of heaven has finally caught me. Remember that, that poem, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my mind and in the mist of tears I hid from him. He had tried to run from God, but unsuccessfully. And God had caught up with him and his heart had turned and he repented and he turned from the divorce that he had gotten in the civil courts and he went back home to his wife. And it was a tremendous testimony to the church that it is possible to come home Again, to say with that song, the paths of sin, too long I've trod. I now repent with bitter tears, coming home, coming home, never more to roam. Open wide thine arms of love. Lord, I'm coming home. And I preach these words to you tonight with a broken heart, not saying to you that I in any way have arrived in this, not bringing condemnation or reproach on anybody. Can I tell you, church, we're in this together. And together we struggle sometimes and we watch, we watch as mistakes are made. But the good news is, even if we're coming home to God after we have lost in the spiritual battle, all is not lost. Chapter 10, verse 2. Yet there is hope. And here is hope. That the God who restores us and brings us home and reveals Himself to us will restore us completely when we repent and come home to Him. Will you come home to Him? Will we come home to God? Never more to roam. And God opens wide His arms of love when we come home to Him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for the greatness of Your love. Thank You that You are the God who restores us and forgives us and redeems us And we, Your people, Lord, like the people in Ezra's day, would come home with weeping and rejoicing, with participation and passion, with a deep commitment, Lord, to study Your Word so that we might live it, so that we might teach others. Because we can never teach others until we live what we say we believe. Help us tonight, Lord, to believe the whole book so that we live the whole book, so that we can offer the whole book of Your Word to all who will hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.